Verses of the, the Dhammapada is um, mind is the chief, the leader of all things, and if one acts or speaks with a pure mind, then happiness follows one, just like your own shadow. Like your own shadow can't be parted from you. So this. Uh, the well-being, the happiness of the mind is like a thing that automatically must follow its its own purity. So, and this particular happiness is a, a, a very simple and worn out kind of word um, quality of sukha well-being wellness well-heartedness feeling content feeling well in, in one's heart mind uh, so this is something that is a very simple concept and I'm sure that most of us uh, hopefully try to come back to just that simple reference of uh, own well-being and search for our own well-being and treasure our own well-being and begin to recognize that our, our well-being doesn't always follow or the shadow like a shadow the um, the search for it. Um, this, the search for well-being is sometimes confused, and so well-being doesn't always follow that. Again, partly because, of course, um, the tremendous conditioning in one's search for happiness is to is to try to find that in things outside of the mind, not in the purity of the mind, but in something to touch or taste or see, feel. And so this um, habit arises, a kind of burning and a clenching to raga, is is the excitement, and, and give rise to a kind of burning feeling stimulation uh, and the clenching loba is sticking to mm, things that uh, through confusion so the mind actually um, dwells in its own realm the realm of mind objects so all our the mind's contact with the senses, the external senses, as you begin to um, investigate and study, is really only in the, that which is derived from the senses. It doesn't actually get a direct sensory impression at all. You get the perception, you get the, the thing you see something your mind is touched by what it reminds you of. You hear something, your mind is touched by what reaction you have to it. 
When you taste something, your mind is moved by the excitement of getting more of it, or moved by the aversion of it. So your mind is actually in contact with the response to the senses. So you never actually get any sensory information purely. It's always a mental response, a mental feeling that arises from the sense contact. Try to try to notice this. This is the key actually. What arises from sense contact? What does sense contact do when we're actually just receptive to it? Where is the beauty? And actually the the if one has faith and tries to follow the teaching and this simple inclination, this, this recognition of mind and really treasure one's mind, then you see that actually the more sensitive and careful, the less our mind is blocked with tension, fear, worry, restlessness, doubt, then the more beautiful sense contact appears. Even the even the sense of silence becomes beautiful. The mind is the primary vehicle and uh, of awareness. It's the it's the primary agent that actually carries and receives this uh, awareness. So, in terms of the the <coughs> training, then you have the sila, samadhi, and banya. Uh, their 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 mark is that of of uh, of well-being. So, uh, for example, the morality is considered uh, sometimes is re- is um, referred to as a fragrance, like a beautiful jasmine flower something that, that tastes sweet because um, the mind that is seeing things is relating to things through that particular way, through that meaning, through that understanding, experiences things in, in a way that it's not it's not vacillating, it's not constricted, it's not frightened, it's not kind of hiding anything, it's open, it's blameless, it has no regret. So because of this, then, then one experiences the happiness of, of sila. And samadhi, banya, uh, the Buddha said of all kinds of happiness that the happiness of samadhi is such that he, for example, could sit seven days and nights with unbroken happiness, without doing anything. Uh, just dwelling in samadhi, just dwelling in the in the in the ease of the mind, when it's actually um, withdrawn from external sensory information, just just dwelling in its own sensitivity, its own balance, its own awareness, and actually the, the samadhi is really that kind of bliss, even though it seems to be far stronger than the, the happiness of, of virtue is still quite weak compared with the happiness of, of understanding. And the Buddha said after his own realizations he spent seven weeks sitting in unbroken bliss, standing, walking under the Bodhi tree in the state of bliss and delight. Seven weeks, days and nights, standing, walking, sitting. The, the, the bliss of that liberation. So much so that one of the epithets of the of the Lord Buddha is Sugato, the one who has gone into this well-being. Their, their coming, their arrival is in well-being. Their movement is in well-being. 
they're, they're going places in, in well-being. When they walk, their well-being stays with them. Because when they walk, the purity of the mind walks with them in their bodies, in their intentions, in their aspirations. Um, these are lovely things to remember. Um, yes, there's, there's kind of just, just to help us to get our views right get our views so if we don't have the bliss of uh, complete liberation just any moment of freedom from clenching from quailing from blocking from stiffening from worrying from vacillating any moment when the the tension or the clenching and the grasping of the mind relaxes just just to notice that in one's life so you get begin to get a feeling for the path it's about this kind of the release and the relaxing of that of the afflictions of the mind into some into impurity so you never you never can grasp or accumulate that well-being. It isn't something that you clutch hold of. So even when one does experience uh, well-being of, of goodness and the well-being of, of samadhi or of realization, then if we really understand the path, then you recognize that that's something you don't hold on to. Because even though it's true, once you clasp it, or once one begins to think in terms of accumulating it, and getting more of it, or getting back to it, or never being bothered by anything anymore, and staying in it forever, then this terrible view arises that begins to clamp and grasp and accumulate and protect. And then this, this whole thing starts to go sour, so this is quite um, you know, it's a continual quality, and the faith in that um, is something that, to sustain, so that the right view of the path is itself the, the happiness of wisdom. Just to be feel that light that one doesn't have to protect oneself. We don't have to protect our samadhi. We can actually always recognize that whenever the mind is released from clenching or grasping, then we, we, can, we, can, we can dwell in that, in that realm, the sukhavati, the realm of, of, of well-being. And primarily the boundary of that, or the fundamental domain of it, is right view And the fundamental activity of it is virtue. And these two together will naturally give rise to, to samadhi and panya. So I like to offer these things because there is a lot of um, sincerity and aspiration, but, but right view to really understand and have faith in that is the thing that transcends the circumstances that we're in, whether we're busy or not busy, whether we're tired or in pain, or we feel vigorous, or we're, you know. In its right view, that really lifts you out, gives you the confidence, and, and sustains your practice. So when one can't, um, you know, it always starts. The path is always like the right view, and then 
virtue, samadhi, and panya. So, without this understanding, then it's easy to to assume that you know you begin to kind of try and get some samadhi, or want to get samadhi, or get liberated, and not recognize it always has to come through this this way in order to be the right view. If you want to sustain it, yeah, you have to come through right view. You have to go through the process of right thought, setting up the mind properly, um, clearing the heart properly, setting up the heart properly, valuing, appreciating, ripening it, bringing it forth, cherishing it, giving it the proper things to, to feed upon proper food for attention, um, giving it the proper time to digest these things. So then it's this is the mindfulness. And so the mindfulness is the thing that helps to feed us, put the right things in, in the right way. Right? In your own body, and your breath. Uh, so then without this, you, know, you may kind of jump into samadhi now and then, but it's always this kind of you know, gaining and losing experience. The Buddha's teaching was always uh, based upon this this understanding of a kind of of a systematic uh, approach um, rather than kind of instant technique so really the Buddha didn't get into a, the, the depth or the, the variety of, of meditation techniques that are now available for us which all have things to offer us but really if we haven't, we haven't actually started or progressed or worked up to those in the, through the proper channel then again they just become things that, that bring up the views of the mind. You know, the way the mind can argue or this system is better than that system, or I want to do this or do that, or I don't think much of this, or it seems a bit old-fashioned. And so there's no real participation in the meditation. It's just a, it's a view of it and ideas about it. And so one always stands outside of it. You can't really develop samadhi because you can't let go and participate. And then, of course, much of our life must always be outside of any technique or even any system. Not just the meditation technique, but the kind of sense in which one can have one's life, particularly in the community, sort of structured and set up. But then there's always things that keep moving out of those um, routines and systems. Like one's own body keeps moving out of it. Your emotions and people coming and going and events and the weather and all these kinds of things. So these can't really... These are very refined things, actually. And the basic, how to be good. How to feel good. And do it not so that it's not trying to be perfect or trying to conform from some standard of external goodness, but giving oneself into one's actions and speech and giving oneself well, full-heartedly. I think is um, most of us find it difficult uh, when we get into a lot of activity if we're, uh, because we get stimulated and then the conditioning of um, trying to get things done or you know, things being physically tiring or things being not particularly interesting things to do. You know, so we hold on to those perceptions, those mind objects. You know, things that interest me, I'm interested in 
these kind of projects. So that particular mind object arises and the mind feeds on that. You know, oh, I've got to get, make sure I get this done. So then that particular mind object arises and the mind feeds on that. Or, you know, all the, all the concoctions, the cocktails that can come up. I do more than she does, or I never get a chance to do this, or I'm always being told what to do, or I have to tell people what to do. And these things, so the mind is in, in contact with these sorrowful and, uh, you know, painful mental objects, rather. So, so whatever we do, those beautiful things that can be done, like preparing food to, to nourish people and offer to people, can be that's a hell. <laughs> you know, helping people, it should be something lovely, can feel utterly miserable and degrading. Because the mind is in contact with these, these, these terrible, wounding experiences. So it's very important to, to really be able to check one's perceptions, what one's doing. Maybe something, you can experience something is boring or, you know, not worthwhile and try to bring up the perception that, maybe this had helped somebody. This is nice, you know, to help somebody is, if I think that, I feel quite good. I don't even mind if they know or not, or even if it does help them. If I feel it helps them, then right at that moment, I get a little bit of lift up. Whether they praise me for it or not is another thing. If I feel that, then I feel a sense of happiness. It's certainly nice, of course, if people do say, that was was very nice, you know. Not just to be nice, but actually really appreciating. This is something, I think, that uh, one can one can lack. I find myself sometimes really not expressing appreciation. It's a bit embarrassing, I guess, in some ways. You know, because it doesn't meet, doesn't do anything. Or you think the person feels, well, they should say something nice back. Or whatever. Or if you express appreciation for the way the food was cooked and the person who did something else says, oh, I never get any... <laughs> so, you know, sometimes feel a bit wary of it. Certainly, when one comes to a monastery, one of the things that I find gladdening is, is say, just, you know, appreciating the diligence and the care put into the things that can't, can't always be interesting and sometimes, frankly, tiring and, you know, justifiably a bit frustrating, tedious. And yet, they've done, there's been some element of giving in that, some element of honouring, some element of serving looking around and feeling that place looks loved and so this is something to (coughs) to certainly try to contact in one's own mind Then, really, you, we, we essentially what seems to happen, why this leads to samadhi, is that when your mind contacts a good mental object, the word good is such a weak word, but really what it means is that you can actually dwell in it and your mind can just relax into it. That seems to be the quality of goodness. It, it, it kind of fills you up. You feel lifted by it or it may be ex- it may be stimulating or exciting but if, if it's but then your mind kind of gets agitated or vibrated by it or wants to grasp it but you don't get the same feeling of, of well-being so a, a mental object that's good 
like seeing, regarding someone with a mind of kindness rather than a mind of lust or something like that. Actually, you can just kind of rest peacefully in that. It makes you feel good. Whereas you look at someone with a mind of desire, then you very well, you might want to stay in that state, but your mind doesn't kind of rest in it. It gets agitated and cooked up and, and grasping. And of course, um, same, a lot of it is ill will. Not necessarily direct hatred, but mistrust, um, anxiety, some fear. That's, you know, you know, shades of greyness of, of, you know, sort of tight tones of mistrust or feeling neglected or we can be seeing each other through these filters. And very often the uh, case can be one when, because one doesn't actually want to know that, we don't really even fully, not even fully aware of that, or want to really acknowledge the mental object. So there's a kind of looking away, looking away. So one sees certainly in in the world and even in monasteries, you know, there's always a percentage of people who can't actually look at you. <laughs> you can't look at each other because the you know that the mental object that comes up is 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 unpleasant. Fear or worry or guilt or something like that. I noticed that. This is sad. Quality of goodness allows us to participate and when you consider it, isn't it, isn't it really the case that in the present, to really be present, you can only, you can only participate in, in the presence of things. You can't, you, know, you can't kind of think about it. You can't hold it. You can only be present. You can, you can hold a particular sensory character. You can grasp at that a particular, um, you know, Black, white, rough, smooth, and kind of hold to those, but the presence of something in that it's that it is actually present, you can only really empty yourself into it. Is that so? That's the way it seems to me. You know, that when one really is present, you're kind of emptying into a sort of a trust and a faith and a opening up into, into what's going on. So, let's look at when one is present with other other people. Isn't it the case that for that time, you know, there's a so almost it's almost risky because you don't have an opinion, you don't have a strategy, you don't have various little kind of defence plans to on hand. You don't have particular bribes you can throw up. You don't have particular <laughs> thing you just kind of. And then if, if one is present with other people, there's a sense of, you, you don't, don't know, you don't know who they are even. You know, you, there's a kind of letting go on that level. And the mind feels easy, you don't feel nervous, it doesn't feel self-conscious. And when that finishes, when we're not doing that, then the presence of other people is, is happy. But when there is a self-consciousness, we may be wanting to be happy, wanting to feel love, wanting to feel okay, but we never actually feel it because of that, that nervousness around it. So after a while, if you do that, then you begin to gradually withdraw more and more and more. So one's nervousness becomes the filter 
through which one sees people. Because of that, you see them as slightly funny or dangerous or uninteresting or threatening, so that you know, sent your own defences get stronger. So you see them even more in that way, and so it goes on. So that you can withdraw. Of course, for most of us, that experience is very fluctuating. I guess sometimes we see each other, depending on what's going on in our own mind, in ways that are afflicted, and sometimes, you know, that drops. There's a moment when you just, you just suddenly enjoy each other's company, like when you're working together, and you have this kind of opinion about this nun or this anagarika or something, and then actually working together, and then, oh, you start laughing. Suddenly all that stuff is gone. How nice that is. One of the beauties of being able to work together is to be able to get so sharing what we're doing that we forget who we are. (laughs) When we forget who we are, then you don't carry all this sort of stuff. I must admit, I'm kind of um, settling in at the moment. So <coughs> <coughs> you can hear my voice is kind of a bit on the bit on the rocks. <coughs> uh, it was quite a had a um, quite, was, uh, quite a nice time in in Spain. It was a charming uh, place. It was quite a lovely time. Meditation and uh, simplicity, these sorts of things. Um, and then, but it was quite a long trip back. And, uh, you know, we were, I think it was about 11 or 12 hours in bumping Land Rover. And then, uh, you know, all the kind of airports and people getting confused and dismissing that and the jangle and the jumble and the music and the duty freeze and the people waving Quantra under your nose and the, Flights and you know, airplanes seem to be set up to make sure you never actually get a single moment of silence or peace. So and all these people bottled up in this little tube, and then coming out the other end, and uh, you know you just find that, uh, and then driving here and so on, you find that even though you know one can flow along with it, just kind of energetically, it seems to just kind of weigh you down a bit. So I don't like to to sort of project, you know, be seen in this state because <laughs> I'm concerned that people think I'm in a bad mood or you know, I'm upset or irritated and just not really quite landed. Yeah. Today I was, um, was practicing the Patimoka the other reason why my voice is not up to much. But uh, it's something I enjoy doing, in, in a way. Uh, I, used to, I did this a lot, particularly when I was in India, I always make a point of practicing chanting. Um, did quite a lot of chanting. And I'd um, practice, always practice chanting the Patimogra every week. When on the one pras, I'd always do something. And with this particular chant, it's the long recitation of the rules, which if you really go at it briskly and it takes about 45 minutes non-stop so you can see it's quite a chunk of chanting you really have to trot away at it and of course with such a thing that it, often you find in your mind of feeling we've got to get this done mm. and it seems such a, a burden so sometimes I had to work with just the resentment of got to do this thing got to drag up some energy from somewhere this thing done. <laughs> but so I actually quite. But then when I, I found in, in India, and the way I do it now, I try to just take take a little bit and then really try to to just get one particular training rule and work on the way I'm making the sounds, the long A's and the, and the T's, retroflex T's, and just kind of really get down to just doing few words and 
Some words I find some frankly difficult to actually articulate, just smoothing them out, taking the time to do that, and then thinking, this is actually, this isn't a telephone directory, I mean, this is a, this is something the, the Buddha laid down. You know, 2,000, 2,500,000 years ago. And then all these noble beings have chanted this stuff for thousands of years. So, you know, you can actually run it through the mind and run it off the tongue, like with a certain sense of, you know, this is, this is <laughs> a sacred text. It's something quite lovely. And it's advising good conduct rather than uh, this thing. <laughs> and, uh, Actually, it acts as the as the whole pivot for the for the bhikkhu sangha, you know. So you can only the, the, one of the definitions of a bhikkhu sangha is enough because in order to chant the patimogi, you have to have four. So unless you've got four bhikkhus, you don't have the bhikkhu sangha in this conventional use of the word. And when you do have four, then you chant the patimogi. So it's like it's the actual pivot of the bhikkhu sangha. And at that time, and when you, you chant it, then everybody's gathered together very closely and you're sitting in silence and then you reflect on the, on the aspirations of the life. This is really, a, without this, you know, what happens? And so, I mean, certainly I've seen many communities where such things don't occur, when there isn't a fortnightly establishment of one of the standards, and what happens is just everybody it breaks up, people get into, I'm the cook, I'm the carpenter, I did this much. <laughs> I've been to Dharma communities where it ends up like that, you know, people are in their little spaces, in their own zones, and they don't even want to sit together anymore. Yeah. And then there's a kind of power struggles and and things of that nature. Because there isn't that coming together around this thing. So it's actually a very, very um, wonderful and beautiful thing. So to be able to do it is actually not supposed to be a, a chore but an honour. So I try to practice it like that. Actually enjoying trying to make my mouth, my breath, my mind come together. And it, you know, you call it instant samadhi, if you like. Just bringing my mouth, you know, the lips and the tongue, the throat, and uh, the mind, and the heart, and the breath together, so that I'm remembering the words, forming them properly, intoning them properly, being with the meaning of it. Uh, so, you know, I do this for just for one rule, talking about you know the ways in which one should procure a robe, then this is quite a lovely experience. It brings around a feeling of well-being in mind. If I think of it as <sighs> what's the nineteenth Nisegipachitya? Does it go? God, do we really need to keep this rule anyway? Why didn't somebody else chant this thing? And of course, the whole thing goes ugly again. Now, I find that doing something like like that slows me down, takes away all the, you know, the kind of mental proliferations about, you know, what's going to happen next month, next week, next year. Da 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 da. There's the simplicity of it. Uh, I would really rec- recommend the, these kinds of things. Like, even in the chanting that we do, that you all do, uh, you know, ordinary chanting, like even taking the refuges, requesting a Dhamma talk or something like that, the mind, the breath, the tongue, moving together like a dance, quite lovely, mm-hmm. participating in each other. So, yeah, I think one of the things with uh, you do chanting is to 
is to make it so that it's steady, it's level, it doesn't, it's not rushed, it's not dragged, it's kind of got level, pitch, and it, it's measured, it's got this quality of grace in it. Because it's not, you know, the meaning of it is, is almost secondary to, to the feeling of it. And if one can open up and get the feeling of it, then you, you do experience the, the, the steadying effect that it's, it's about. That's why we don't just kind of send messages like give a talk. You know, you kind of have a way of, of requesting it. It sets it up. And today also I was, um, <coughs> helping or, Participating in Renal Nipoko and Kalyano's um, ordination preparations. So that was something I, I found very helpful for myself. You know, actually spending time together. And then I think we spent about half an hour or so just looking at which would be the best ways to fold the robes so the edges wouldn't be trailing out and look tidy. You know. Offer these. These are the robes. You know. Offer these to the preceptor, and making something out of it. So, of course, you know there are different. This is because of the mental object that arises from that particular action. Right? We're not looking at fashion, you know, or, or you know who's going to applaud. Looking at what kind of mental object arises from that action undertaken in that way. What mental object arises from the action? Okay, we're going to get this done. Where's your robes? Okay, pick them up, give them to him, go back again, make sure you get it right. What kind of mental object arises from that? Or even being together. Well, I'm going to show you this thing. I've done it now. I've been teaching this thing for now 10, 15 years. Here comes another pair. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Why can't you get this right? <laughs> Hurry up. You know, what kind of mental object arises then? Really being able to you know, participate and share in it and consider, you know, how to make this something that, that really lifts up and represents what these people are trying to do. What their what their hearts are trying to do anyway. They're lifting up into the holy life, into the life that's beautiful. And to be the whole quality of of this acceptance is what is lifted up and gathered in like like a like a lost friend. Someone who's been away for a while and you Good to see you, bring you back in again. They're gathering round. So, and then the people will be coming from different countries in order to, to form that circle for this occasion in which these two people have made a commitment. Making a commitment is quite, when you think about it, it's quite, can be quite nerve wracking. Five years or so, at least. As an, at least as a kind of, that's what one aims for. <laughs> but then the Sangha is, is what? Supatipano. So again, this quality of wellness, practicing well not getting it right all the time, but practicing this, staying in this realm of goodness, what one does. Not hurrying, not dragging back, participating, emptying oneself into the life, pouring oneself into it. Ujjupatipano directly, not kind of on some abstract philosophical level, but pouring oneself into the chanting, into pulling down one's sitting cloth, into relating to a teacher. So it becomes a very full experience rather than some superficial detail on the outside of what's going on in my life. Nyaya Patipano is really getting the mind to, to know that, 
to to feel it, to to abide in it, to drink it. So it's it's fully known. And samichi is uh, properly or with integrity. And integrity is uh, means many things, perhaps. It means integration, isn't it? The internal and the external are seen equally as a coming together of, say, what may seem to be one's inner reality and what may seem to be the world out there. They are, they are, they come together. And one is living one's truth and acting it. So when you consider it, um, of course, there's something um, personally I find rewarding in being able to attend mindfully to details. But of course, there's a there's can be a drawback with that, can't there? Mm. Don't know if you recognise that. Get lost in them for a start, and uh, also you can get so that sometimes you 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 don't always see the broad picture. You get into the kind of little nice little details, or want to do everything in this kind of very nice way when perhaps something don't actually allow that. Something is kind of gritty, and some things have to go quickly. Some things are not terribly refined. Digging the ground, mucking out the compost, oiling the tractor, lumping the wood around. So, but the with each such things, I don't know if you've found ways and means of of. Change just working on your perceptions of those. I hope so. Personally, I try to, you know, a lot of stuff I do, though you don't necessarily see it, is actually not particularly refined. You know, maybe it may be mental, but it's you know, it's quick and it's sharp and it's hard and it's not particularly pleasant. But I do try to um, bring into my mind the consciousness of doing this for the welfare of others. And really considering that. Offer, making an offering of it. And these external structures, I think, are important to sustain why we live in a monastery where we sometimes we can do things that are not don't seem to be ideally monastic you know, driving what's the difference between the way an Angarica drives and the way anybody else drives you know how refined is traffic jams um, <laughs> so this is this is I think is, is, is quite tough really I notice myself just you know, being in contact with that kind of world it's it's a world that's Hasty and quite you know, abrasive. And how to bring into mind, you know, how to, to be in touch with one's body, how to use the kind of the speed that one's driving at, and the, refl- the constant reflection of why, you know, what one is doing, what one is part of, what one is trying to support in, by, by this action. And a lot of our life, actually, whatever we're doing, involves walking from this place to that place, opening this door and that door, picking this up and putting that down, 
looking at somebody and talking to them, remembering something and thinking about it, deciding how to communicate to somebody else. A lot of it, whatever we're doing, is really about that, isn't it? And there, if one does develop the satipatthana in a careful way, in a suitable way, you know, where we walk, wherever we're going, however, you know, whatever the purpose is, we're walking with our bodies. And when your mind lives with your body, when your mind walks with your body, then you walk in with beauty. You're not kind of clumping, stamping, rushing, dragging, just walking. There is that, there is that sense of, of beauty in the mind. When you talk, so that you, what needs to be said, so that you try to make it something that a person can hear, the way that they like to hear it, it sits easily in the ear, so it's not slung out the corner of the mouth, mumbled, it doesn't have the underlying negativity in it, or, or, or shaming that um, stains the speech, you know, guilt, putting guilt onto people, pressures. But, uh, then when one's speech is in touch with that, then this again keeps one in living in this realm. And whatever we're doing, whether we're even more commonly than walking, moving your body around, there's always the breath. And so what you're doing, to be able to find yourself not far from the breath, the breath with you, so that you can, you know, you're driving along, you can actually feel yourself breathing. You're working, you feel yourself breathing. So you've got that sense of it, that sort of reference point. I like to try to, to, uh, to work with these things in, in my own practice. Nothing else comes to mind at the moment, apart from silence. <laughs> 